I don't know if it's just out of immaturity that people my age, especially boys, are like afraid of feminism and they think it's like, oh, that's weird. Like those pussy hat wearing girls, like, oh, like they're just weirded out by it. And like a lot of my friends who like aren't like outspoken feminists or even if they are, they're like, oh, all those sexists and racists will just die off in a few years. Like, no big deal. And I'm like, yeah, but there's a whole generation of them coming. <laughs> it's probably been a while, if ever, since you read through the Constitution. But let's play a quick game of memory. True or false? The United States Constitution currently contains an Equal Rights Amendment which says that equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. So, true or false? We'll wait. We did a poll a few years ago which indicated that 80% of people thought we already had the ERA in the Constitution and 94% thought we should. That's Jessica Newworth, president of an organization called the Equal Rights Amendment Coalition, a group working tirelessly to get something like that into the Constitution. And their poll also found that around three out of every 50 Americans think, you know what, that doesn't sound like a very good idea. Or do they? The pollsters told me that you never get numbers like this. And it was, I should say, across the board, 90% in every category. So um, based on race, based on age, based on political affiliation, it was all over 90%. And they said when you take a number like 94%, you could ask someone whether you need air to breathe and you won't get 100%. That's like, that's just the way polling works. There's always some people that will say no. So they felt like this was just off the charts. And, and that's my impression. I mean, again, it's such a basic issue. Who would be against it? Just like gun control and environmental protections, most people seem to want equal rights for women. But there's one thing about this issue that makes it different from those fights. The Equal Rights Amendment, or ERA for short, is the longest consistently fought for amendment in the history of the United States. It's been brought up and taken down over and over for almost 100 years. That's a really long time in our country's short history, and there's a chance its time has finally come. I'm Kristen Conger, and this is Focus on the Equal Rights Amendment. This episode of Focus On is brought to you by On the Basis of Sex. On the Basis of Sex tells the inspiring and spirited true story that follows young lawyer Ruth Bader Ginsburg as she teams with her husband Marty to bring a groundbreaking case before the U.S. Court of Appeals and overturn a century of gender discrimination. Now playing in select theaters out everywhere January 11th. Equal rights for women. What could be so bad about that? Unfortunately, we can't speak to the dead yet and ask our founding fathers why they left specifically us, women, out of all their declarations and proclamations and whatnot. But we do, from the historical record, know that it wasn't an innocent oversight or lack of female voices calling for such a thing from the beginning. No, because in early 1776, as her husband was regularly getting together with his male buddies to discuss writing the Declaration of Independence, 
Abigail Adams put pen to paper and went on the record in a letter imploring her future president mate to, you know, think of her while he was at work. I long to hear that you have declared an independency. And by the way, in the new code of laws, which I suppose it will be necessary for you to make, I desire you would remember the ladies and be more generous and favorable to them than your ancestors. Do not put such unlimited powers into the hands of the husbands. Remember, all men would be tyrants if they could. If particular care and attention is not paid to the ladies, we are determined to foment a rebellion and will not hold ourselves bound by any laws in which we have no voice or representation. And John wrote her back. As to your extraordinary code of laws, I cannot but laugh. We have been told that our struggle has loosened the bands of government everywhere, that children and apprentices were disobedient, that schools and colleges were grown turbulent, that Indians slighted their guardians and Negroes grew insolent to their masters. But your letter was the first intimation that another tribe more numerous and powerful than all the rest were grown discontented. This is rather too coarse a compliment, but you are so saucy I won't blot it out. Depend upon it. We know better than to repeal our masculine systems. Mansplanation translation, men know better than to give saucy women any constitutional rights. What gents? So it went like this for about 150 years. In the meantime, the 13th Amendment passed. Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. And then the 14th Amendment. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. And then, once you've got freedom and citizenship, it only makes sense that you'd get to vote. I mean, what's the point of being a citizen if you can't actually participate in our democracy? So the 15th Amendment passed in 1870. The right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Notice anyone missing from that one? Yeah, women. There's no mention of sex because it's pretty obvious to everyone involved that citizens only meant men. Women were angry, and their resentment was erupting in public displays like the first Women's Rights Convention in Seneca Falls and the first National Women's Rights Convention in Massachusetts, where women got together and talked about how to win equality. Those efforts were put on hold at the start of the Civil War, a recurring theme whenever the U.S. is involved in a conflict, but suffragists pick up right where they left off when this particular war ended. They would spend the next 55 years working for legal equality, taking relatively polite steps forward and back until the 19th Amendment earns women the right to vote. Now, the problem with the 19th Amendment was kind of the reverse of the 14th and 15th Amendments. In those, a group of people were given citizenship and equal protection under the law, so it followed that they should have a voice in those laws. But here, women were given the vote without being given full citizenship, which was quite the opposite. 
Rebecca DeWolf, a historian and author of the forthcoming book, Gendered Citizenship, the Original Conflict Over the Equal Rights Amendment, explains. In 1920, there was the 19th Amendment. It passed. It gave women the right to vote. But this was actually a really big deal because it disrupted the traditional understanding of American citizenship that had given men authority over women in law and in custom. So after this big moment, the question was, okay, what are women's other rights going to be now that they are electors? Men were seen as the primary citizens, and there was common law and the concept of coverture, which basically the idea was that women were covered by the male head of the household. But with the 19th Amendment, it constitutionally affirmed women's right to have a participation in the government on their own. Um, So it was a big deal. Um, So the big question then was, okay, so if women had the right to vote, what other rights do they have? Yeah, you heard that right. Coverture had been law in the U.S. from the minute Europeans stepped foot on its soil, essentially meaning women didn't have a separate legal existence from whichever man was next of kin. In most states, women couldn't own businesses or even decide what to do with the money they earned because legally, it wasn't their money. It was thought that fathers, brothers, and husbands should speak for their women as part of their manly duty and superiority. They were just better at speaking and making decisions and stuff. And they framed it like it was a real cross to bear, you know, just constantly taking care of us. With the 19th Amendment, those women could now vote, but only if their man-keepers let them. And then who's to say that vote would count? Or for how much? Or when? The law says that women aren't actually their own people, which is confusing, right? And also kind of gross. So, along came a new wave of activists in the early 1920s. Among them, a young suffragist named Alice Paul. Haven't heard of her? You're not alone. Here's Lucy Beard, the director of the Alice Paul Institute. She was, in her time, considered a radical. And we generally write our radicals out. Um, And she was very much written out, intentionally written out of the women's history story when they sat to write the last volume of the history of women's suffrage in America, um, there were instructions were given to the writers to minimize her role. Why was that? Um, There was bad blood between her and the more mainstream leaders of the movement at the time. For the record, women of color were almost entirely written out of that same women's history volume as well. Meanwhile, Alice was from a progressive Quaker community in New Jersey, where women had a lot of power and influence even in the late 1800s. It's not surprising that her mom introduced her to the suffrage movement. She was also at the top of her class in school and a member of the student government at Swarthmore. Alice was basically a triple threat, socially conscious, smart, and politically active, but she was also rebellious. And then she started campaigning for the 19th Amendment. Alice picked up a few tricks from the suffrage movement in the UK. She had traveled to England to continue her studies after graduation and fell in with the Women's Social and Political Union when she heard one of its co-founders speak. This was a group with the vaguely threatening slogan, Deeds, Not Words. Even they were fed up with armchair activism. They were known for storming parliament and smashing windows, tying themselves to railings and lighting things on fire. For her role in all this, Alice was beaten by police, sentenced to hard labor, and three separate stints in jail. Her preferred method of protest was the hunger strike, a tactic that would profoundly alter not only her political views, but her physical being. Here's Lucy. 
I'm always careful to not paint her as a victim. It's very dramatic to talk about these women picketing and then getting thrown in jail and being force-fed. They did that intentionally. They knew exactly what would happen if they went on a hunger strike. They're not victims. This was a political strategy. So I think she rose to prominence because she did have such a keen eye for politics and for messaging and knew how to get the suffrage cause in the public eye and keep it there. Her mom, Tacey Paul, heard about at least one of her arrests the same way everyone else did, in the local paper. She vented her frustration in her journal. The press had an article on first page in big type, Miss Alice Paul jailed in London, then followed an account of her being arrested. I went over to Moorestown for the mail and people stopped me on the street and post office. Of course, I had heard nothing of it. And relatably, Alice is hardly sympathetic to her mother's anxiety. When she finally gets out of jail and receives a stack of confiscated letters from her mother, she writes back. Thee ought not to believe anything that appears in the papers. It is pure imagination to talk about the prison resounding with my screams. Many other women are doing it. Why shouldn't I? Their parents do not make a fuss about it. And then Alice comes out of jail. She, her mother had been writing frantic letters to her, and she hadn't gotten any. They didn't allow her any correspondence. So she comes out to a stack of letters from her worried mother, and she sits down and writes her one, and just says, oh, I'm so sorry thee was worried, but you really shouldn't have. I had a lovely time in jail. <laughs> so, and she says, none of the other suffragist mothers are complaining. Why should thee? <laughs> I'm just a petulant teenager at that point. Her letters and complaints make no big deal of her time in prison, but it was actually pretty horrific. At one point, she went almost a week with nothing but water, so jail staff forced a tube up her nose so they could force feed her just to keep her alive. Alice left prison and England frail, but angrier than ever. Um, and then she was bedridden for the next month, um, recuperating from this, uh, the force feeding and the hunger striking. We know that she lost her sense of smell for a while. Someone who was here when she came home said that she had no interest in food. She couldn't smell anything. Then that would have been from scarring from nasal tube feeding. Her childhood neighbors were unimpressed with her extremism. She's seen as a drama queen, and drama queens provoke gossip. So naturally, a reporter from Everybody's Magazine visited New Jersey in 1919 to investigate local sentiment. In an article called What the Hometown Thinks of Alice Paul, a woman called Mrs. L sums up a common refrain. At all events, Alice shouldn't have brought these methods over here. They antagonize people. America's different, and everything can be done through education and persuasion. America's mainstream suffragists agreed. Since Alice's return to the U.S., she'd only caused trouble, insisting that equality is a federal issue and not one for individual states. If the other suffragists, though, thought Alice would back down, they were wrong. Instead, she organized a women's march on Washington. She planned it for the day before Woodrow Wilson's inauguration when she knew press and tourists would be in town and paying attention. Alice was driven to the point of driving herself out of the movement. Ambitious and defiant, she wasn't making any fans among the usual suffragist crew. So she started her own group, the National Women's Party, or the NWP. They kept up their radical ways, pressuring Wilson, Congress, and state legislators to pass the 19th Amendment. It worked. 
By now, Alice is a master, or mistress, of public relations and pretty hard to ignore. Riding the wave of suffragist girl power, she's like, right, one down, a jillion more to go. In fact, Alice and her National Women's Party had identified more than 1,000 state laws at the time that openly discriminated against women on the basis of sex. Laws like no women on juries and no married or pregnant women in certain workplaces, like schools. So Alice proposes a sweeping, simple, constitutional fix. In 1923, she drafts the Equal Rights Amendment. Equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. That was it. The ERA made it to Congress in 1923 thanks to Republican Senator Curtis and Representative Anthony. And if that second name rings a bell, it's because he was the nephew of suffragist Susan B. Anthony. Alice and her crew had friends in high places, which helped move the amendment along. To some, the amendment is a no-brainer. I mean, the 19th Amendment passed. Why not this one? President Coolidge even assured the National Women's Party of that at a private White House meeting. Your presence here is a very impressive demonstration of your desire. I'm personally certain that if you will present to Congress, as you have done to me, your reasons why you want this constitutional amendment, you will find them very responsive to your request. By now you know... They weren't. The ERA didn't get far in the 20s, although support for it picked up by the late 30s and 40s. And there are three reasons for that. The Roaring Twenties, the Great Depression, and the Second World War. Rebecca DeWolf, one of the few young scholars on the ERA, has made this era the focus of her work. One of the wonderful things that I found in my research is when there's economic turmoil or political turmoil or any kind of like social upheaval, in a lot of ways it pushes American society more towards the pro-ERA position. So when things seem to be just fine, it goes more back towards the anti-ERA position. But when things start to get a little shaky, it goes more pro-ERA. During the Great Depression, everyone, including women, needed to work. During World War II, everyone, including women, needed to work. And they did a damn good job. Roosevelt argues that they're actually showing men up. As I told, the three press association representatives who accompanied me, I was impressed by the large proportion of women employed, doing skilled manual labor, running machines. As time goes on and many more of our men enter the armed forces, this proportion of women will increase. Within less than a year from now, I think, there will probably be as many women as men working in our war production plants. I had some enlightening experiences relating to the old saying of us men that curiosity, inquisitiveness, is stronger among women. I noticed frequently that when we drove unannounced down the middle aisle of a great plant, full of workers and machines, the first people to look up from their work were the men and not the women. It was chiefly the men who were arguing. But predictably, when the war is over and life goes back to normal, women are expected to head home. 
So the drive behind the ERA was slowing down, um, and the dynamics of the conflict were trying were starting to change, and they were starting to change in the anti-ERA camp's favor. So what was going on? What was happening? So policymakers, in particular, feared the very real possibility that women workers might not give up their jobs to returning veterans, and they believed that this would create an unemployment crisis and possibly put us back into another Great Depression. The argument would be that women are um, secondary earners and that they're not actually the principal wage earners. So men need to have a wage because they're the ones providing for their families and they're the ones that should be providing for the families. And women actually don't really need um, you know, a wage. They just use it for extra change to buy luxury goods or whatever. I mean, that, th- those were the kind of arguments that were out there. So instead of the ERA being at the forefront of political conversation, the question became, how do we prevent women from hijacking men's rights and paychecks? And that's what drives post-war policy. The federal government ended daycare funding um, and gave veterans the right to replace wartime workers. Congress also removed married women from public payrolls to make room for unemployed men, even when female employees were better suited for the job. So when the war ended, government planners placed the readjustment of 16 million veterans at the heart of their post-war domestic policy because they believed that peaceful readjustment would only come if women returned to their duties in the domestic sphere. If you've noticed some hypocrisy here, you're not alone. Wonderful thing that a lot of the ERA supporters did during the war was they connected the war to what they said that the ERA was for. So you had a lot of um, ERA supporters saying, hey, you can't go to war and say that you're saving the world for democracy and then not actually have full democracy at home. The ERA gained momentum again in the 60s. Although her state still refuses to ratify the ERA, Georgia Senator Nan Orrick has fought for the amendment since then, long before she got into politics. It was the height of the civil rights movement and the early days of feminism's second wave. A chorus of voices were demanding equality. Black men like Martin Luther King Jr. singing one tune, and white women like Gloria Steinem singing another. But the voices and specific issues facing women of color, meanwhile, often got drowned out in the middle. There's time and again when I think women of color were sent the message or given the message, you know, directly or indirectly, that uh, we've got this, uh, we're handling this, we're 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 going to be able to speak for everybody, and and there's there's had to be real battles uh, for women of color and the voices of women of color to speak for themselves. There. I think was a constant tension around whether those voices were equally reflected um, in the in the what was seen as the quote quote white women's movement. The you know and that's not a, that's not a new contradiction. That's a long-standing contradiction uh, that that uh, in the battle for for uh, suffrage in the in the U.S. Um, we can we can see that the voting rights of uh, African Americans were not front and center as that battle for women's suffrage. We asked Nan how the ERA would have helped a young white woman from Georgia in the 1960s and how she would have benefited from it. An early example, when I went off to college, I couldn't go to the University of Virginia. A wonderful Mr. Jefferson School, a fine college, a fine university, you know, universally touted as an excellent place to go get an education if you're a guy. Because I was female, I had to go to the women's college of the University of Virginia, which was 80 miles down the road over in Fredericksburg, and it was called Mary Washington College. And it wasn't a university. It was not Mr. Jefferson's university. And uh, it, it, it didn't, you know, my degree did not have the prestige 
uh, did not have those kind of top-ranked, national, nationally-regarded professors, et cetera, et cetera. And nor were the women allowed in Yale, for example. And people now say, what do you mean you couldn't go to the University of Virginia? We were not allowed. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 really helped pave the way for the ERA by putting women of color on more equal footing with white women, allowing them to form a more united and intersectional coalition to champion the ERA. The amendment didn't actually pass through the Senate until 1972, and that seemed like the perfect time for the states to ratify it. The final push. Even President Nixon, not exactly anyone's moral compass, supported the ERA. And then trouble blew in with a honey-hued bouffant. Hello, I'm Phyllis Schlafly. Thank you for letting me visit with you via the medium of television in your homes. My friends in Maine... Phyllis Schlafly, a lawyer and mother of six, emerged from the woodwork to remind women that equal rights are not just unnecessary, they're destructive? Women uh, should not be equal to men. I think under our present system in the United States, uh, women enjoy a very wonderful status. I think it's better than equality. I think women would be sacrificing uh, many of the good things they now have, and it would be taking a step downward uh, to go for equality. Phyllis, a right-wing wolf in housewife's clothing, believed the ERA would undermine protections for women that were already in place, forcing them into military drafts and co-ed bathrooms. She also thought it'd kill any responsibility men felt at home since they wouldn't legally be on the hook for providing for a wife. In Phyllis's post-ERA dystopia, we'd all be using whichever restroom is available and probably be conscripted at war times into jobs fit for women because even Phyllis knew they wouldn't put us on the front lines, at least not immediately. And we'd all be single moms paying our own bills. Like, can you even imagine? In the early 1970s, Phyllis Schlafly was everywhere. She established STOP ERA, an organization whose acronym, which contains its own acronym, stands for Stop Taking Our Privileges. In response to pro-ERA rallies across the country, she held a pro-life, pro-family rally. And she debated Betty Friedan on national TV. Well, you see, I think we, we simply must, and I think we should do it rightfully in 1976, 200th year of the Republic get the Constitution equally applied to women. When you make uh, the laws apply equally to men and women, you end up taking away many of the rights that women now have. The laws of every state make it the obligation of the husband to support his wife, to provide her with a home, uh, to support their minor children. Now, all these things will be lost when you apply a rule that says that everything must be equal. Now, until you can make it equal for men to have the babies just like women, then it is a double burden to the women to say that the rules for family support should be equal on the husband and the wife. If you don't listen too closely to what she's saying, she's one of those personalities who says it with such poise and conviction that you might think, this lady really knows what she's talking about. People actually drank Phyllis's Kool-Aid. She gained supporters, men, women, and her Republican buddy, Ronald Reagan, who, unsurprisingly, then became the first president of either party in decades to publicly oppose the amendment. 
Here, Jimmy Carter calls him out in a 1980 presidential debate. I mentioned the uh, radical departure of Governor Reagan from the principles or ideals or historical perspective of his own party. I don't think this can be better illustrated than in the case with guaranteeing women equal rights under the Constitution of our nation. For 40 years, the Republican Party platforms call for guaranteeing women equal rights with a constitutional amendment. Six predecessors of mine who served in the Oval Office called for this guarantee of women's rights. Governor Reagan and the new Republican Party has departed from this commitment. A very severe blow to the opportunity for women finally to correct discrimination under which they have suffered. When a man and a woman do the same amount of work, a man gets paid a dollar, a woman only gets paid 59 cents. And the Equal Rights Amendment only says that equality of rights shall not be abridged for women by the federal government or by the state government. That's all it says. A simple guarantee of equality of opportunity, which typifies the Democratic Party and which is a very important commitment of mine, as contrasted with Governor Reagan's radical departure from the long-standing policies of his own party. Governor Reagan. Yes. Mr. President, once again, I happen to be against the amendment because I think the amendment will take this problem out of the hands of elected legislators and put it in the hands of unelected judges. I am for equal rights. While I was governor more than eight years ago, I found 14 separate instances where women were discriminated against in the body of California law and I had passed and signed into law 14 statutes that eliminated those discriminations, including the economic ones that you have just mentioned, equal pay and so forth. I believe that if in all these years that we've spent trying to get the amendment, that we'd spent as much time correcting these laws as we did in California and we were the first to do it. If I were president, I would also now take a look at the hundreds of federal regulations which discriminate against women and which go right on while everyone is looking for an amendment. I would have someone ride herd in those regulations and we'd start eliminating those discriminations in the federal government against women. But I would like to call the attention of the people to the fact that a, that so-called simple amendment could be used by mischievous men to destroy discriminations that properly belong by law to women respecting the physical differences between the two sexes, labor laws that protect them against doing things that would be physically harmful to them, those would all, could all be challenged by men. And the same would be true with regard to combat service in the military and so forth. Women should have rights, but why do we have to give them every right all at once and in a way that's really, really hard to take back if it turns out to like be uncool or something? This approach has been suggested time and again over the last century, and in part, it's worked. Like in 1975, when states were denied the right to exclude women from juries thanks to Taylor v. Louisiana. Or Phillips v. Martin Marietta Corporation, where the Supreme Court made it illegal for private employers to refuse to hire women with preschool-aged children. But the problem with laws is that they can easily be overturned. And then there's the sheer number of them. Gloria Steinem figured out that addressing each discriminatory law one at a time would take 485 years. In order for the ERA to become part of the Constitution, 
three quarters of the states, so 38, need to ratify it, and 30 states did ratify it between 1972 and 1973. That's pretty typical. Like, it takes a minute to convince everyone. And most amendments pass within two years. Except this one. Today, 96 years since it was first written, we're only at 37 states. One state short of ratification. But a lot of people think that could change this year, that the 38th state is imminent. And oddly enough, it may be Virginia that'll push it through. Jennifer Carol Foy, a Virginia delegate, has a lot to do with that. I'm Jennifer Carol Foy, and I'm the delegate for the second district um, here in the Virginia House of Delegates. Very rarely are you able to do something so historic. And I think that it is wonderful for it to be Virginia because Virginia has been on the wrong side of history a lot of times. Uh, we fought against interracial marriage. We fought against women's right to vote, fought against desegregation. Um, Virginia closed schools because they did not want African-Americans to attend. I remember hearing stories uh, from my grandmother that people would pour acid into the pools because they did not want Blacks swimming in the same pools as, as them. So Virginia has a, a chance to be on the right side of history and actually fight for equality, and specifically women's equality. And I think that that would just um, be momentous. Now, to be clear, Virginia isn't the only state that could get this thing done. There's several other Southern states um, that can potentially pass an Equal Rights Amendment. And so I have a friend that's in North Carolina and she is an advocate. And so she she has perked up and paid attention to a lot of the great efforts that we have here in Virginia, how it's uh, nationwide now what we're doing here. And she came up to me and she says, you know what, we're pushing here in North Carolina and we're gonna you know, be the next state to pass and ratify the Equal Rights Amendment. And my response to her was, bring it on. Like, it's going to be Virginia, but if you want to try, I mean, that's great for you, too. At the end of the day, we just need to carry it over the finish line. And so, I mean, that is a polite challenge, and I am more than up for it. And we're definitely going to do our best to make it happen here, because Virginia needs to be that last and final state. But why hasn't it passed until now? And why is no one talking about this at the water cooler or debating it with relatives on Facebook? It all goes back to that statistic. 80% of people think the U.S. Constitution already grants women equal rights to men. When they find out it doesn't, they tend to believe there must be a legitimate reason why. So, is there? If the ERA were to pass, no one at work could treat you differently because of your gender or use it as a reason to pay you less. They couldn't fire you or ever so subtly push you out during a pregnancy. All of those things would be illegal, as in they are not illegal now. And that doesn't include protections it would provide against domestic violence or reproductive rights, sex trafficking and sexual assault, and trans rights. This is crazy on its own, but it's even crazier in a global context. 76% of countries in the world have gender equality provisions in their constitutions. Austria, Bangladesh, China, Dominican Republic, Egypt, they all protect women in writing. The United States? No, we don't do that. 
If you're one of those people thinking, now come on, would the ERA really change anything? Who in the 21st century would interpret the Constitution to mean that women don't have the same rights as men? Well, how about the late Justice Antonin Scalia, who served on the Supreme Court until he died in 2016? And I don't think anybody would have thought that equal protection would have applied to sex discrimination, or certainly not to sexual orientation discrimination. So does that mean that that we've gone off on a in error by applying yes. Yes. to to both sex to, to sex discrimination? Sorry to tell you that. Oh, no, that's fine. I'm I'm happy to. But to you know, whatever if, you have to if say. indeed the current society has come to different views, that's fine. You do not need the Constitution to reflect the wishes of the current society. Certainly, the Constitution does not require sexual discrimination on the basis of sex. The only issue is whether it prohibits it. It it doesn't. Nobody ever thought that that's what it meant. Nobody ever voted for that. In other words, it's not unconstitutional to discriminate against women. Anyone can. And they do. Take Walmart, for example. In 2001, a group of Walmart employees brought a gender discrimination lawsuit against the chain, claiming they were paid less, trained less, and promoted less than their male co-workers. The case was eventually given class action certification, meaning it would represent 1.5 million former and current Walmart employees. Walmart appealed that class action status, and the case has been kicking around the court system for the last 17 years. Sorry, ladies. And remember that Georgia Senator Nan Oryk's college experience? It turns out that kind of thing still goes on. Here's Jennifer Foy, the representative from Virginia. She attended the Virginia Military Institute, or VMI. Now, while you listen to this, remember, Jennifer is only 37. VMI is one of the top military colleges in the country, and they spent millions of dollars to keep women out of its doors. Um, Women had applied to attend, and they were denied, and they were denied um, not on their merit, but because of their gender. And there were some people who used misogynistic um, views as far as um, supporting those reasons. So they said things like women were inferior physically and mentally to men, that they didn't have the stamina, that they couldn't run run as long, do as many push-ups, couldn't undertake the academic rigor that VMI had to offer. Women were already allowed to go into the military. So they were already training and marching and uh, doing all the things that men were doing. Um, But for some reason, we weren't able to sit down in a chair uh, in a classroom next to a male and meet those same standards. So I vehemently disagreed with that. And in that moment, I said that, you know what, I'm going to go to VMI because I'm just as powerful and smart and capable as any male in that classroom. And at that time, all of the men, of course, jumped up in protest. The Supreme Court stepped in and decided that as a public school that accepts public funds, the Virginia Military Institute would have to accept women. Jennifer was part of the third class of female cadets in 1999. I wanted to do this because uh, the fire within me um, burns brighter than anything else. So my grandmother used to always say, if you want to move Jen, if you want her to do something, tell her that she can't do it. Tell her there's something out there that is impossible and watch her shine. And um, I took it as a, um, a, I thought it was offensive when I was younger, 
But now I understand what she meant by that. She saw that in me at a very young age, the defiance, the inability to be complacent, the willingness to fight for equality, fairness, and justice. Um, that's what moves me in the morning. Um, and so I think even to adulthood, it's just some people, they're just built that way. And to know that someone told me that women couldn't do something and I knew that was a false narrative and I knew the struggle that women have gone through for suffrage and uh, equality and everything else and I knew this was just one more hurdle that needed to be overcome and to be in the historic place at that time to say there's something I could do about it then yeah I'm willing to travel um, the, that path that's less traveled in order to make it easier for the women that's coming behind me. Whether the ERA is finally ratified this year or a century from now, there will always be women willing to fight for their rights, including a group of teenagers in New Jersey. We visited the Alice Paul Institute to meet the Girls Leadership Council, a group that works towards education, empowerment, and equality for young women. We left feeling more hopeful than ever. I think Alice Paul was amazing and hardcore, and I wish I could be like that. But I don't know, in the next few years in this political climate, I might have to be like that. I don't know. But she's someone I look up to, um, an alumnus of my school. Uh, (laughs) She had so much dedication, even though she wasn't like the predominant leader that we, when we study women's history, we look at Susan B. Anthony and like, Elizabeth Cady Staten and Danton, and that's all we see. When there were so many other women who, Alice Paul never once stood on the sideline. She was writing, she was calling, she was getting support. She was doing everything that she could from her skills. And she didn't like push herself further than that. And I feel like she used her skills to her advantage. And that's something I learned here is that you don't have to be good at everything to be the best leader. You just have to find what you're good at and work from there. This episode is brought to you by Focus On, a new podcast by Focus Features. Focus On takes a deeper look at the stories behind the latest Focus Features films, from the history behind the trial of Mary, Queen of Scots, to the trajectory of the Equal Rights Amendment. Listen now on Apple Podcasts. This has been Focus on the ERA, hosted by me, Kristen Conger, with Caroline Irvin. It was produced by Little Everywhere and Focus Features. Listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. 